House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And, of course, I'm Al Warren. On the side saddle today, we've got Mr. John Copenhaver. Hey, Al. How are things going? Things are always good. Well, not really. There's terrible oh, really? behind the scenes. <laughs> but nobody cares. Here, you know, here we are. We're having a good time, you know. And, Remain uh, positive, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Just, just focus on uh, – I'm just focusing on work. You know, I can't even watch the news anymore. I'm just, it's just too depressing. Yeah. So I'm just – yeah, just stay on, stay on focus and, and – uh, you know, take care of my dogs. <laughs> yeah. They're more important right now. Anyway, well, anyway, we don't want to. Uh, we want to keep things up because that's what we do here. We're not talking about life. We're talking about writing. And uh, <laughs> today we've got a friend of yours. Another one you brought brought her in. She sounds very interesting. And we're going to talk about the new book called Whereabouts Unknown. And of course, the um, writer is our guest, and that's Meredith Dench. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Al. Wow. So, Meredith, where did it all start? <laughs> I mean, I, I, no, I, I say that funny, but you've written a few books now. Uh, yeah. Has writing been something you've been always into since you can remember, or is this something that's fairly recent? Yeah. So, as a kid, I was not at all interested in school. I actually really hated it. And... um I did not do well in it. And until like, you know, I think I was in eighth grade when I found Stephen King and started reading some of the Stephen King books and then into like my ninth grade years and that. Um, and that was when I think I remember like for the very first time thinking I could do this. I want to, if I'm going to have to have a job someday, this is what I would like to do. Um, and it was, that's when I also started taking a real interest, like in my English classes and things like that. So my whole desire really, and especially through my high school years, I was really into slasher films and I loved horror so much. I still love it. Um, and I thought that was like, my goal was to become a horror writer. And I just really went after that. And then I think it wasn't until, I think I was in my second year of my grad program when I realized that crime writing had so many elements that could bring out this idea of justice. Because ultimately that's what I was writing about in my horror. Ghost. I was writing about some form of justice happening. Um, and then I started to realize oh, I could also write about justice from this angle. And then that clicked and it just clicked into place for me. And then, you know, now I really can't imagine writing anything else but crime. Um, every once in a while, I like short horror stories, but I'm pretty hooked on my genre, um, I think. So I think, yeah, I mean, I've always been thinking in that direction, but I've done, I've been a teacher for quite some time. I taught special education um, for three years for kids who had um, emotional disabilities. And, um, you know, pretty much I've just been teaching my whole life. I teach now um, at the University of Dayton. So I've had other careers, but, you know, writing has always been the mainstay that's kind of like been there that's carried me through. You know, one advantage to crime fiction writers, and I always say this, is that you you get to choose the ending. Like you get to choose 
how to resolve things and actually get things done in a sense. Um, when I'm dealing with the real thing, I don't. It is what it is. I can, I can investigate it. I can comment on it. But nowadays, that's even bad thing. But you get to kind of go, well, this isn't right. So I'm going to, you know, you, you can follow the story through and hopefully have an ending. Is that, is that something that you try to do in your book? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody needs some sort of like resolution or justice. It might not be what they hoped for, um, like the main characters, or it may not be what society would hope for in terms of like some form of a justice, but there is some sort of something's happening that's kind of bringing them um, towards justice in some way, I think. Is that kind of a subtext as well? Like when you set out to write a novel, like I've noticed You've had a series of uh, what the Luke Hansen thriller Luke Hansen, series, yeah. Now, so when you're setting out to write something like that in a series, is it in the back of your mind, kind of what you want people to take away from the book, besides the entertainment and, and all that going on? Yeah, you know, it takes me the longest. So each of the Luke Hansen novels were, um, I kind of thought of them as sort of like Law and Order episodes. So like, like the characters continue, but each one has their own crime sort of involved in it. And I, yeah, so the crime sort of fits something that I feel like I have something I want to say something about. Usually that's the way that it comes down to. Um and so, like, in those three books, there was, there was something that was probably, that was bugging me, and it felt like, you know, that was what I, a way for me to kind of talk about it, that kind of a thing through that. And so, yeah, the crime is sort of the thing that leads to this larger, hopefully leads to a larger conversation. The first one um, was the one I spent the most time on because I, I was learning how to write a novel, but um, I was writing about an ex-game ministry and there were crimes that were sort of filtering, or at least the idea was that they were filtering through this ex-game ministry. Um, in the end, that wasn't the way that it was really happening once she figured this out. But I really had a lot to say about ex-game ministries at the time. So I think that that's sort of the way that it sort of works. Hmm. You get frustrated with the, the real justice system in the world of legality in the United States? Or, or is there things that you see something will come on the news or some story will come on or some crime will happen and, the, you know, how it turns out isn't very good in, in your eyes. And do you get frustrated and incorporate that then? Or is that sort of the initiator? Absolutely. I've been teaching – so I teach at the University of Dayton, and for the last 10 years I've been teaching a American prison literature and culture class where we've, like, looked at a lot of different prison narratives. and. Um, looked at some current cases and some past cases and God, it's infuriating sometimes to look at those. I mean, it's just unbelievable to like, listen to what people have written their narratives of what has happened to them in prison. Um, and there's been no real justice that's been brought for them. Right. Um, but then also the cases are infuriating too to read when there's not been justice that's been brought for them. And I do think that a lot of those, um, those narratives that we read, sort of filter like they just keep moving in the back of my head and ultimately sort of become a crime i'd never take a crime for any of my books that is like like ripped from the headlines type of a thing that like follows a crime completely 
but it's usually like two or three different ones that are sort of melded together. That's, you know, things that really bother me from different crimes that sort of fit together. If that makes any sense. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, they, they kind of tie together in a sense. Um, so do you have an opinion on the justice system? Is that sort of a, are you kind of hoping that it changes or it gets in a better situation, let's just say, than it is now? Yeah, you know, so I'm currently working, my newer work is going to hopefully work a little bit more with, like, our current, just, like, with the prison system itself. I have a lot to say about that. But I think that the books that I've written haven't gotten there yet. Like, those have more to do with capturing people who are, you know, committing crimes and doing things that are damaging to society and all of that kind of stuff like that. But, um, yeah. Oh yeah. I have lots to say about the prison system. I'm sure <laughs> you do after writing all these crime books, right? Yeah. I think I, the, the one thing I do say is a lot of people say, well, if the system's broken, I always say it was never, never right to begin with. Yeah. absolutely. I, you know, it was built off of something that was, it was done, incorrectly or done not quite as it should have been how's that and i think that um people think that it was good and now it's broken it's like no it's always been always been that way you know i can go back a hundred years and and find stories and it's like this is crazy it's it's not it's not like it ever was all there you know and i think the other biggest the other biggest problem i see is that um you're also dealing with a lot of people, like humans are running the system, and you you vote people in, like for a sheriff, and for a lot of the different jobs. And it's sort of something that I don't see as, it shouldn't be about popularity, and there's you've got too much of the feelings and emotions involved in justice, and uh, it needs to be more logic and more... Um, there a lot more of everything to it. I, I don't know. It's just, um, it just needs to be better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and that's what I hope that my upcoming works maybe will deal with a little bit more. I have this idea for kind of doing like, um, a series of short essays that maybe might eventually pull into a book of some kind. So, mm. Yeah, it's always good to delve in. I always I always find that um, I learn something new each time I go through a case. I'm it sure. Changes, it, it changes me, um, you know, more after the fact than, than during. You don't notice it until later. Yeah. Uh, did you get that same feeling when you do even the crime oh, fictions? Yeah, absolutely, because you spend so much time with uh... – you know, with your characters inside. And even if, even though I'm not writing usually from their point of view, I'm writing from a different character's point of view. I'm still spending so much time with them that it's, it definitely infiltrates <laughs> inside me. And then I definitely need like this period of time after drafts to just sort of decompress a little bit and get away from that. I am definitely someone who tends to look at things like, you know, um, the glass is half empty type of a deal. And so (laughs) it can really pull me down into a depression if I'm not careful. Um, I love those rabbit holes, but wow, they can sometimes be, be rough emotionally. Yeah. You write about serial killers in different ways. And I, I tangentially. Yeah. It's dark stuff. Um, I've always wondered, you know, whether it's fiction or, and I'm thinking like fiction that's attempting to be realistic about serial killers, not yeah. serial bananas stuff. But 
like and of course true crime it, it's it's got to be a lot to kind of toe emotionally um do you find yeah. it that that ways? yeah i definitely do i mean you know it's a whole different mindset to think about, um, especially since serial killers, the majority of them are incredibly proud of what they've done. Mm-hmm. And that's just something that doesn't even make sense to me, really. So it's so hard to like even put yourself into that mind frame. Um, I, th- I think they see the world differently than we do. Yeah. I used to get told that. Uh, as I was younger, that I just see things differently. And, and that stayed with me because, um, when someone sees things in a totally different light or frame and they see something like you look at something and see it one way and they see it as something maybe scary or something bad and they live with that, then they think they're doing the right thing. So in their world, they're the good guy. (laughs) You know, it's hard. It's hard. You know, right. What I do is I jump back to like, I've done a couple of old, histories from 100 years ago where I don't get emotionally involved because after I did that last one, Murder Time 6, you're very involved, I mean, with all the, the, the remaining members of the family, with the killer, with his new wife, with the, and the police, like you're so involved for a period of time that that's when you get really um, emotional or depressed. Yeah. So I've got to go to out-of-touch crimes like 100 years ago. That's personally so... I really love, I, I was really excited to see that you wrote about Russell Williams. I thought that that was an amazing case in Canada. Um, did you get yeah. to meet him? Yeah, and that, and that book, you know, that was the very first book I ever wrote. Um, but yeah, it's quite a case. It is yeah. quite a case. I, you know, it's, I can't say enough about it. It's, um, and it's never ending, it's still going on. <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing. But when you, so, so that's what, you know, when I was talking about the character, like if you talk about Russell Williams, so I go meet him and talk to his wife and, and you, you get to all the details about a person and you try to focus in and, and make people understand who this guy was as best you can. And, and same as I spend a lot of time with the convicting cop. You, um, in your new book, Whereabouts Unknown, okay, so this is a, I love the title, first of all. It's one of those, it will always make me stop when I see something like that. Because <laughs> it could be a lot of different things. I like it. And, hey. and Theodora Madsen, like, that's your main character, and she's a homicide detective and, and, and that. So how do you create that kind of a character, you see? Because I go out and meet them, and I, I get to know who that character is. But you, are you doing the same thing? Do you kind of search out people that are in that kind of job, or do you just make it up in your brain, or well, what goes on? No, I've met – I well, and so I have, like um, – I did a lot of interviews for the Luz Hansen um, series of detectives and people who are working in law enforcement – but she actually worked for the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation, which was um, sort of like the FBI of Ohio. And so um, I was able to like go and tour that facility and sort of hear some of the stories about people who are working there and that kind of a thing. But my favorite thing to do is sort of ride along if um, if officers or detectives will let allow a ride along. Um, before we went into lockdown, you know, before the pandemic hit, most were welcoming for things like that, or they would welcome me in for, to talk to them with a few questions, that kind of a thing. 
Um, I live in Dayton, Ohio, and in like a really small suburb of that. And we only have one female detective in our area. So I've spent time really talking to her. Um, and then also I live not very far from Columbus. Um, and then Cincinnati is only an hour away the other direction. So I've tried really hard to um, interview as many that are willing to talk to me, particularly women who are working in law enforcement. But um, this book was written during COVID. I mean, I, I signed the contract for this book. And then pretty much like three months later, we went into lot, you know, we, the, everything started shutting down. So this was a really hard book to write because um, everything kind of had to be done through email, like questioning through email or I could call people. But I was, I mean, I've been really lucky because I have um, one of my friends from childhood is an ex cop who worked sex crimes. And I mean, sex crimes was her specialty, but she knows people who, you know, were kind of in everything that can sort of give me information and things like that. Um, and that was very helpful to be able to talk to some people for this particular case from, for missing teens. Um, you know, I wasn't exactly sure, you know, how long I know that the case would be really important at the beginning, but when would it actually go cold? So I needed details like that. There's also, um, a lot of, I don't know how to say this, but I have a second narrator in this book, um, Annabelle Jackson, who is a 16 year old who's actually being held captive, um, in the book. And so as we sort of listen to her or as we read her story, um, she encounters a lot of different things on her journey as well, too. And I was lucky enough to have um, someone who works at a university around here talk to me about um, kind of like what would happen to bodies. <laughs> it was kind of disgusting to talk about, but, you know, what happens to bodies Um I hate to give too much away, but there's things going on in the book that kind of, um, in this lockdown area, but so I had, I mean, I had some help, but, um, a lot of it was just research that I was doing as well too. Yeah. And I was going to say, I bet you it's still really difficult for a female to be a detective or to be an officer. Yeah. Um, even in today's society, like people sort of assume that everything is, it's equal and and that it's not an issue. I think, if anything, this might be more difficult because I think the public has a uh, a general thought of what a female cop should look like and what is. Do you know? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, even just the numbers around here. I mean, there's the majority, I mean, the vast majority are male. Um, but yeah, there's also this idea, yeah of what a woman cop should look like. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because I go back. I'm talking about that, actually, yeah. Yeah, because I look back at some of the old shows you see from the 70s and 80s, and you uh -huh. can see how, how females were treated a yes. second. Very, very obvious back then when you <laughs> yes. look back. I mean, back then they might not have been, people might not have realized it, but when you look back, you can certainly see, wow, this is, wow. Um, I just wonder, do you think in 20 years people will look back and kind of think the same thing about now? Gosh, I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I do. 
I you do. What's interesting to me is that like Hollywood sometimes in its attempt to, to be, um, you know, I guess inclusive or mm-hmm. progressive will often cast a lot of that. They create a sort of dynamic in the, uh, you know, the police room that, you know, I, I wonder how true it actually is, um, you know, and what the reality might actually look like. In other words, do we seem to be making more progress than we have been making? What, what do you think, Meredith? I would, you know, from the interviews and stuff I've done, I went in with the expectation that it was going to be a really masculine environment mm-hmm. and that, um, it was sort of like you have to kind of fit into that or you're not going to survive there. But most of the women that I talked to, they did give me this element of like, I had to fight to be here. But at the same time, they all talked about this, like how they were pulled in to this family type of an organization, like that, um, where they felt really included and very much supported no matter what happened to them. So I think that the fight was getting in, but once you're in, it seems like there's this inclusivity that seems to pull in. Um, the hard part is I think getting the job and getting through all of the things to get you to the point where you actually have that interview. Um, that seems to be what holds so many people back. That's really interesting. I, I kind of get that. It's a little bit like the, almost like you've earned your way in. Yeah. So now you're on the inside. Like yeah. these gatekeep, you know, like gatekeepers along the way that keep them out. Yeah. It's still easy to gang up on, on oh, a female. Now, but with your, with Theodora, like how do you develop the character, like the personal parts of it? Is that a lot of you going into the personality of, of her? Well, you know, I felt like Luce Hansen was more like me than this particular character. I mean, Theo is, um, well, just to kind of set her up, she's like 53 at the time the book starts. Um, she is in a really stable relationship with her partner and they have a baby on the way. She feels like she's in the prime of her career. She's had really great cases. Um, and she's doing just, she's really on her game. Um, she's nervous about the baby coming, but she's really at the top of her professional career, I would say. Um, plus she's just very athletic and things like that. But as the book opens, um, she's on a routine follow-up to one of these, to one of the missing teens. And, um, there's a shooting that happens in this routine follow-up that she didn't expect. So there's a question about pretty much throughout the whole book. It's pretty unsure whether she's ever going to be able to recover completely or even enough that she can keep her job. And so I think, I mean, there are elements about her that are like me. I mean, I, I have never had a, a physical, um, a physical temporary disability or a permanent one. Um, but I have had, I do have an autoimmune disorder. Um, so my second character, Annabelle, also struggles with an autoimmune disorder. So I think that, you know, there's elements that I was able to pull from that to write Theo. I mean, I can imagine how frustrating it would be to want to be able to run and not be able to run or, you know, like I can, I can imagine those things, but yeah, there's, there's elements of her that are 
pretty different for me. She also feels like pretty secure, I think. And I, I don't know if I necessarily feel that way all the time. So, but yeah, I do pull for myself, but I would say Luce Hansen is definitely more like me than, um, than Theo. It's really interesting just having characters in a detective novel that, you know, do have to navigate a disability. Um, I mean, particularly, I think, to a certain degree, crime fiction um, is, you know, ableist a little bit because, you know, so much is action-oriented and that kind of thing. And um, so it's exciting to hear that those kinds of characters are coming up in your work. I mean, did, is that something you were setting out to do, or do you think that just sort of... So when I first met Theo, like when I first started thinking about this, you know, this whole thing as a novel, and I just started really getting to know her, she was already injured in my head. Um, so originally I was going to start the book with her already injured and then go forward, and um, and then it turned out that I needed to go back. But... Um, it was really, I did set out with her in mind of being, you know, having this, and also this question, hopefully the reader's questioning throughout whether or not she's ever going to be able to fully recover. She's been shot in the hip, which leads to a whole bunch of nerve, like nerve damage and things like that, which make it kind of hard for her to um, move her leg. There's not like the messages are not getting to her leg as well as they could, things like that. Um but the doctor keeps telling her you could fully recover. We just don't know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I did, but I, what I didn't set out to do was make my second major character have an autoimmune disorder. And that was a real shock to me or a real surprise to me when that happened, because I was just doing like a free write one day in Annabelle's voice and it just popped in there. I was like, Oh, this makes perfect sense this is going to make things so much harder for you. <laughs> so then it just sort of, it all kind of fit into place. Um, but I ha I mean, you know, the time that I was working on this book, we were in the middle of lockdown and I, you know, I just, I was thinking about health so much because, you know, I mean, just watching death counts come up on the screen, how many people are hospitalized, people that, you know, in my life that have got COVID, my mom got it at some point and was hospitalized. So, like there was just all of this talk about bodies and health and it just sort of just, you know, really. And I was also, you know, I've also been dealing with my own autoimmune disorder. So all of those things just sort of filtered into the novel. It just strikes me as a sort of a kind of um, undiscovered country a little bit in crime fiction. Yeah, so, you know, it is. And there's some potential. It seems like I like, you know, it, it just seems like an exciting um, and important, yeah. of course. Thing I wrote, um, I have an article that's going to be coming out with Crime Reads um, about disability and crime writing. And yeah, it was surprising when I really started re like researching it, how few um, writers have really dump jumped into that. Um, there's been quite a few that have had like, um, who have either been like wheelchair bound or something like that, but they haven't had any kinds of like, we don't have a lot of representation of um, from the disability spectrum, like, you know, going across it. So I was, it was really interesting to read through. Um, I think we all usually think of Jeffrey Deaver's characters and with, when, you know, we're kind of thinking of that, but there is a listing that I found that has something like 90 some detectives who 
or else privatized that have had some sort of a disability. And this person did this amazing work to find these things. Um, but they're not usually in the mainstream stuff that we read and see. No, remember Ironside? Old Ironside, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, again, I'm dating. I'm dating. <laughs> Never mind. No, no, yeah. Bye. But when you're doing this during COVID, like you're locked down and you're doing a lot of the writing, uh, did that outside stress sort of get into your head and make it difficult for you to write? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I actually wrote about in the, you know, like in my little author part of the book, I did say, I mean, I talked about that, that there, I was definitely dealing with a writer's block for part of it. And um, the pressure just sort of kept mounting because, I had these deadlines and I, I didn't meet them twice. Um, I had to ask for extensions, which I have never really had to do yet before. So it was definitely COVID. And also too, during COVID. So the other part that was, you know, really intense was all of my classes from school were moved online and I've never, ever taught online before. So I had to learn how to do that and maneuver that. Plus I was also trying to write. So it, it was a really horrible time. No, I could see that. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you outline the, the, the books? Like when you, especially when you're doing a series, um, like you were doing before, do you, do you kind of outline what you're going to do and kind of know how it's going to end or what the main theme of the story is and then fill it in? Or do you just do it by the seat of your pants? I'm kind of in the middle. So I would say that I do, I do a very broad kind of an outline that it just has like the key moments that I, you know, in my head I'm, I'm, I'm sort of plotting out. Um, and then a lot of it is just discovery during the writing. Um, but I, you know, for this, for my next book, I keep telling myself like, you got to learn from your mistakes. Cause I don't, I can't tell you how many times I had to rewrite whereabouts unknown because there's two different timelines going on in this book. And at some point those timelines had to meet at the exact moment. <laughs> and um, I misjudged that so many times. And I, I really attribute that to not planning enough. Um, so I keep telling myself that when I do this again, I am not going to do it the way that I did it. I'm going to do a lot more planning. I don't know about John, what about you? Do you, how much time do you spend planning? Yeah, well, I, it sounds like kind of a similar journey to yours. I, I tend to spend time with the characters digging in and then kind of figure out the plot. I mean, I have a scenario, but I really haven't figured out the entire plot. And it's, you know, usually like 100 pages, and I'm like, whoa, i got to figure this yeah. thing out. And um, But I, I am now, in, in the follow-up to Savage Kind, I've already outlined it. It feels really nice to have that outline. <laughs> So I'm wondering if I'm not evolving a little bit, too. I've also had to go through a lot of rewriting of both the two published books. I'm wondering if I need to just plan it more and trust that, you know, I will listen to the characters if things need to change. Oh, you know absolutely. What I, mean? but, I, love, I love doing that backstory stuff, too. Like, I could just write for days about, when I was five, this happened, you know? <laughs> <laughs> It <laughs> just doesn't even matter. Yeah, I love that too. And yeah, you're right. You can get to page 100, and you're like, "What's going on? Right. How's this going to work out?" <laughs> it depends on how many cocktails John has. I know. I the plot the plot gets smoothed out with a few cocktails. Um, <laughs> at least in my head. 
<laughs> things things start getting right. And he has got, yeah, it's all good, you know. Um, so each book stands alone in your series. Yes, it does. The main detective or the main, you know, Luce Hansen, and there's usually, I think there's two others that mostly carry over, but everything else, yeah, the whole case is a new case, yeah. On the new, with the new book, um, is are you going to make that a series too, or are you, you're not sure? I have thoughts about that. I would like to eventually, I think. Um, I'd really love to write a book that um, where my two, you know, where Theo, Ma- Theo Manson and Luce meet up in some way, which I think could be very realistic because one's a detective in the state of Ohio and one works for the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation. I, I think that there's a way that I could maybe pull them together. I don't know. They're in two very different worlds, but I wonder if I could pull it. It's just something I've been thinking about. So, Sure, just have a few cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> Anything works the more you drink, right? I mean, it gets, yeah, it can work. We can make that, you know. It's just, you know, I'm just saying, uh, you know, uh, you can use my ideas. They're always, okay. never, never worry. <laughs> um, I, I, I wonder, but, you know, so when you say, uh, listen to my characters and stuff, so what's your relationship with your characters? And I say that coming from a nonfiction writer who doesn't have characters. I don't hear things in my head. They don't talk to me unless I'm in front of them. So, explain that to to someone that's a nonfiction writer yeah i definitely hear them um i i don't go as far as seeing them i've heard from like some writers have talked to me when we've talked about it of actually like seeing them as if they're they're people who are in the room with them i don't go that far though i do have really good ideas about what they look like um it's more that i just hear them and hear them kind of like telling me here's what, here's what happens, here's what happens, and that kind of a thing like that, um, and I, you know, it does feel like you're, like, sort of trying on voices or something, and then once you hit the right one, that one stays with you, um, and so I've had dreams about my characters before when I've been working on them, particularly Lucy Anson, because I worked with her for so long, um, but it's more just, like, hearing the, the way that they talk, the things that they might say, the way they might describe, you know, a situation that I'm writing about. What about you, John? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I was thinking about that. I was like, if one of my characters walked through the door, I would scream. Like, <laughs> I do not see my characters. I, I feel like it's more like uh, drag, really. I feel like I kind of put my character on to Oh, write. yeah. It's, that's a good way to say it. So that's kind of really what it is for me. Um, I mean, certainly my point of view characters, I should say. I don't necessarily think it's true for all the characters that I write, but my point of view characters, um, it's more like they're part of me that gets to sort of step mm-hmm. forward and speak, and then they go back. Um, but if they were separate from me and I suddenly saw them, I, I think, think that, that would be, be really scary, too. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> no, go back. You can't imagine, like, you know, some entity, like, sitting in the room with you while you're writing. It would just be, yeah. Hey, if it works for you, I'm, I'm for it. Is whatever, whatever, whatever the muses do, um, you know, I'm here for yeah. it. Just don't tell you to drive off. No, the they do not. Anymore. They do not. But I was going to ask you, Alan, when you're writing, do you, like, do you hear the real voices in your head? Oh, like, like no. the, like actually things that they've said or like when you've done interviews and stuff with these people? 
No. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an unusual character. So I'm, I'm, I'm more involved in how people are living throughout the whole crime and afterwards. And so it, it's not always, um, yeah, I'm not really hearing them, so to speak. It's not the same. I don't yeah. think, anyway. I don't think it's a relationship, if that makes sense. Yeah, where I do, I do kind of like, feel like I have a relationship with my characters. Yeah, so. like, yeah, you both, because even John, like, when you're both talking, you guys have, um, you know, my characters tell me this and that, and they, 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 I know this is right, or stuff like, you kind of get, it's, it's almost like you have a relationship. Yeah. You it's know. It's really creepy, Connor, um, the way we're talking about it. Yeah, well, it is, you know, that's why I think, that's why I do bring this up a lot of times when I'm, I'm interviewing people, because I think that it's important that, because people that, a lot of people that listen are not writers, and they don't know this, and this this probably sounds weird to them, so it's always good to kind of hash it out a little bit, so they hopefully can understand that you're not totally insane. <laughs> well, momentary insanity, but not hopefully. <laughs> How do you describe your characters then? I, and I say that in the terms of a lot of, Writers will say it's like my children, my family, my friends. They have all these descriptions. What's your description? So I would say that Theo feels like an older sister. That's what I how I would describe Theo. That like an older sister mm-hmm. that sort of kind of that I would want to be like. Um, she's really just she's a really strong character, and so I always I find myself saying, like feeling like oh, I wish you could be as strong as her or something. So it kind of feels like that relationship of like looking up to an older sibling, um, like wanting to be a little bit like your older siblings type of a deal. That's how I would describe it. How do you like um, interaction with uh, readers now and with uh, social media and stuff? Are you, are you a social media fan? Well, I try really hard to be engaged on social media. Um, I think it is really, it can be really draining for me. And I feel like I, you know, like, I, okay, I have to post like three times this week and, you know, or I try to like set goals for myself like that, but it, it just, it feels, it can be really, really draining to me. Um, so it, I wouldn't say I'm a real big fan of it, but at the same time, I also recognize in our, you know, in our current day, like how else do books, you know, and in movies and things like that get advertised. Like I, you know, it's, it's an, it's a necessary evil, but I'm not totally convinced. Like I haven't jumped on the TikTok wagon and so when you, <laughs> you know, we're trying that. And like, I just have not gotten there yet. Um, so yeah, but I, you know, I do, I do really love to hear from, from readers. That's one of my favorite things. And so it seems like most of them, um, don't realize like, they, they go to social media first, um, rather than like going to your website and sending a message through the website. Um, so I, that's another reason why I really want to keep all my social media going because I really like to be able to be accessible like that. So how do people get a hold of you? What is your website and what social media are you on so, other than TikTok? I'm not on TikTok yet, but I, I do have um, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and they're all under just my name, Meredith Dench. Um, and then on my website, it's also underneath just www.merithdench.com. And there is a place there where you can send messages. Um, 
And so I've gotten some that way, but most of the time it's people who are sending me messages through, um, you know, Instagram or something like that. Reviews, do you, do you take them seriously? Do you follow up on them or do you sort of ignore them? Well, I, you know, I think they're important to, so one of the things that I really like to do is not look at the early ones. So, um, you know, like I, I, my last book, Dead Eye came out in 2019. And so like in 2020 around there, like that's when I was looking at the reviews and what I was trying to do was to find if there was a thread through most of them, like something that was standing out through many of them. And that's how I feel like it can be really helpful. Um, so, you know, but wow, reading the early ones is really hard for me. I don't, I don't know. What about you, John? Do you like to read them? No, not, like, so... not good reading. I don't, I, I just don't do good reads. Uh, occasionally I'll ask my husband to step in and read yeah. just to see, you know, um, I, I'll look at an Amazon one sometimes. Um, but unless it's a really thoughtful review one way or another, honestly, I don't pay it a lot of attention. Um, does that make any sense? Oh, yeah. Like if it's just like, someone being nasty, ugh, well, who cares? Like you're just being nasty or on the other side, just someone being, Oh, I love it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you did, but I don't really can't do much with that. Um, in terms of like applying it. Um, I just really kind of have to look at what feedback seems constructive. Right. Right. But also, just I can't do the Goodreads thing, and I, t I tend to think authors need to stay away from Goodreads. That's for readers, well, not all. Goodreads. We've had a lot of um, in the, the you know like the women loving women publishing world. There's been somebody like there. We've had some anti, you know, people who have gone through. We know them as Charles or Charles too. You know, who just go through and give everybody ones. Um, and, you know, just stuff like that, just that it just seems so arbitrary in Goodreads sometimes, you know? Yeah, people even, like, will give you a one-star just to market or something. Like, it's not even a review in their head. I'm like, they're like, just don't know how to use Goodreads. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like, this is just nuts. Like, I I mean, I, I tend to find, uh, personally, I get my recommendations from people whose opinions I trust right. and through sort of, um, you know, established reviewers. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it's too bold to suggest that maybe others should look in those areas as well to get the recommendations. Um, but uh, I guess I'm, what I'm saying is I'm suspicious that crowdsourcing is really useful in terms of finding both a match for your interests um, and for quality. I mean, look at society, right? They, they all like things that are really bad. You know, I, I don't know how I'm saying it, but, you know, like like McDonald's sells more burgers than anybody. It's not the best. Right. Right. And and I mean that with the most love. <laughs> well, and also, like, you maybe just like you're, you're looking for a McDonald's hamburger. And so that's what, you know, it's just that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily looking for that. And others may not either. So um, but if you're only being sort of offered a McDonald's hamburger and you're not looking beyond that to realize there may be something you want more then you know, essentially you're getting a lot, you're getting just one thing and it's not, I think that's where it kind of breaks down a bit. Yeah. And that's kind of it. You know, it's all, over. you know, did you, did you take people that you've met that you, that you don't like or people that say bad things about you and you put them in your books and kill them? I really don't. I don't usually spend much time doing that. 
<laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> it's therapeutic. It's the best thing for you. Maybe I need to try that for the next one. I'm I'm open to trying all new things for this next book that I'm going to write. So maybe I'll take that on. <laughs> well, that's what, you know, I got that idea a couple of years ago from J.D. Horn, who was, a, he's, a, he's a big time writer for New York Times. He's done really well. And he uh, says that anytime someone cuts him off or says something rude to him, he'll take that and put them into a character and make sure that they have a terrible death. <laughs> And, and, you know, and, and at first, yeah, I laughed about it too bad for a couple of years. I'm thinking it might, maybe it's therapeutic. Maybe it helps. Yep. <laughs> oh, I'm insane. It would I'm definitely just... be therapeutic. I just wouldn't want to spend all that time trying to make it work in a plot. It, then I'm like, I'm giving that person so much energy. I just, ugh, I can't. Well, just when your character's getting out to her car or his car, you know, and then they see someone get run over. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm terrible. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm causing trouble here. But um, Well, um, so w- this book comes out, and do you plan on going out to any of the um, shows or any of the uh, signings or doing anything in the next year, or are you staying away from them still? Well, no. I Well, yeah, there's not too much um, this summer that I'm going to be going to, but BoucherCon, I'll be in the fall. Um, are you two going to that? I am. Okay. I'm 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 not invited. <laughs> no, I, I I don't I don't really feel in place because I um, true crime doesn't really fit in with most of the yeah. crime fiction writers. You know, I, I I feel out of place, so I I tend I tend not to go to any of them. So yeah, I think that that might actually be my first in person one in like two and a half years or something like that. So that's going to be pretty wild to be in person with it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so most of the stuff I've been doing has been on zoom. I've done, um, a few readings here and there. Um, I've done a lot of teaching of workshops. Um, so if you can follow my, like my website on the calendar, I usually have a workshop that I've been doing. It's kind of actually equaled out to be like once a month, but they're usually hosted by like a public library or something like that. Um, I'm hoping to do a little bit more of that this summer. When you finish a book like Whereabouts Unknown um, and you're all done and now you're going to go out and and start promoting it and that, do you think a process of writing a book like that changes you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, there there were moments when I didn't think I could write this book because it felt too big and overwhelming to me. Um, It definitely gave me a lot more confidence. that definitely changed me in some ways as a writer to write this book. So um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> But yeah. Well, I think each book we write, we feel we get a little bit better, yeah. right? Yeah, hopefully. And because and hopefully, because if we're aware, well, it's, it's just paying attention yeah. to your older books. Yeah. You know, as you get through a book and you kind of look back and you kind of go, oh, geez, I wish I did this and that. Because quite often, I mean, don't you look back at books and kind of go, oh, I wish I could have done this. Or I would. Would you change anything in your books that you've previously written? Yes, I would. I do think no matter how much I really, really liked the first one that came out, I think that I needed to spend more time with it. Um, I think that it needed some more some more work with maybe the structure of it or yeah, I would, I would change that. I also, that one was also really super bloody. 
<laughs> one. And I think I probably would tone that down if I had the opportunity to change that. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's just a process, but you wouldn't go back and actually redo it. No, you? no, no, no. I just like yeah. looking back, I think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And, you know, things like that. Yeah, I think it's a bad thing to get into if you start going back and re redoing books or re-editing. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but. Well, certainly been an interesting conversation. Um, I should I should ask, what influences you the most? Um, is it other writers? Is it um, your slasher films you like, or is it true crime? Like, what what is what is it that you think is the the, the main part, the main influence for you? I am definitely influenced a lot by true crime, and I you know like Investigation Discovery that channel is on pretty much all the time in the evening at my house. And so <laughs> I am very much motivated to write by things that I hear about true crime. And I'm so fascinated by it. Um, but then the second, like running up second with that would be other writer, like other books, you know, that deal with crime. Um, but I would say first and like really holding like that first space would be true crime. Who's the person you rely on most when you when you to read the book before you publish it? Oh, well, you know, I've had a couple of people who have read it in the past who were crime writers. And the person that I found who has helped me the most um, is somebody who doesn't even write fiction and writes memoir um, and writes about family and love and children. And like, <laughs> like everything that I don't write about is kind of what she writes about. And, um, she's been really, really great to like, you know, kind of say, I don't know about this, you know, like some of the questioning of it. And, um, sometimes she pulls me back a little bit from the horror stuff too, but she's been, she's definitely, she's read the last three, um, this one and then two others. The only one she didn't read was the first one. So you know, she's been a huge help with that. And I really love hearing a voice that doesn't do this, you know, for their own publishing. Yeah. Right. I think that's important. It's it's a different, angle, yeah. Yeah. you know, different, you know, they're not involved in it, so to speak. So, wow. Fascinating. Um, of course, we'll have your website up on ours as well. So people can find you with one click. Great. Very important. And everyone, you need to buy this book. It's out March 15th. And it's called Whereabouts Unknown. The author is Meredith Dench, and she's been our guest. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Get the latest news and opinions from Eric Shapiro from the House of Mystery website in the Shapiro Report. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.